I want to invite you to grab your Bible. Turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you're looking in the Pew Bible in front of you, you ought to find it on page 339. One of the um, challenges and sometimes blessings of preaching through books of the Bible is you you have to preach every text. Um, you don't get to skip. You don't get to just pick the ones that are easy. And we've had a few tough texts lately, um, and I left them with Colby. Um, so he can thank me for that later. Uh, in fact, a couple weeks ago after Colby preached from 2 Samuel 13, my mom said, boy, that you left him with a hard text. And she was right. Um, I didn't do that intentionally, but it's just the way it worked out. And the Bible does not shy away from the ugliness of sin. It describes sin not in vague generalities, but in specific detail, sometimes to the point of making us a little bit uncomfortable. Just to make sure we're all on the same page, I want to give a quick recap of what has happened in the recent past here, because this is we'll need to know this to make sense of what's going on in our text today. One of David's sons, Amnon, uh, sexually assaulted his sister Tamar. And David did nothing about it. It's not that he was ignorant of what Amnon did. He, he knew what happened. He chose not to carry out justice. As the king, he should have. God's word required him to punish Amnon. But while David was very angry, as the text says, he did nothing. And in this vacuum of justice, one of David's other sons, Absalom, took justice into his own hands. He waited and plotted, and eventually he had Amnon murdered. So in the span of about two years, one of David's daughters is raped. David does nothing. Then one of David's sons kills his other son. The whole story is, is dark and unpleasant. It's painful to read. It's messy. There is no one in that story who is innocent except Tamar. Amnon guilty of assault, Absalom guilty of murder, David guilty of injustice. He refused to hold Amnon accountable. He refused to hold Absalom accountable. This morning we're going to continue to see the unfolding consequences of David's sin. So let's read together 2 Samuel 15. We're going to begin in verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now, just so we know here, Absalom is the guy who murdered his brother Amnon. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate, and when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. 
But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. When Absalom went, uh, 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited, with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word, and um, we, we need the help of your spirit this morning to understand this text, and more importantly, to understand what in the world it has to do with us. And so, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see truth here that would apply to us, that you would help us to see the truth of sin and of your holiness and of your unfailing plan, even in the midst of sinful intentions of so many people. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, what happens in these 12 verses is not all that difficult to understand. Absalom is engaging in a not-so-secret conspiracy against his father David. He, he, he uses lots of things. He uses uh, trickery. He even uses religion, uh, false religion. Let me go, and I've, I've vowed a vow to the Lord. Let me go to Hebron, that sort of thing. So he is carefully, willfully drawing the favor of the people of Israel away from David and toward himself. How does he do that? Verse 2 says that Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. Now, when you think about the gate of the city, don't just think about an entrance point. The, the gate was an important public place. It would not just be a, a literal gate. It would have been like a walkway that you would come through. There would be rooms there where people could meet. It was a gathering place. It was a public place where people conducted business. If you needed to, to do business with someone and you needed it to be visible, you wanted to make sure you weren't being deceived or you wanted to make sure that there were witnesses to it, you would go to the gate and you would do it there. If you wanted to debate politics, you could go to the gate and you could find some people there to, to talk politics. If you had some matter of justice that needed to be disputed, you could go to the gate and you could do it there. So the, the gate of the city was kind of like a cross between town hall, courthouse, barbershop, coffee shop. It was just this public place where people gathered, some to do business, some to, to do important you know, matters of justice. And for four years... Absalom goes to this gate and he catches people who are coming to the city to bring a dispute to King David. And so in, in the nation of Israel, there was this system where you had all these tribes spread out and, and there, were, there were different leaders of those tribes. And, and a lot of times those people could dispute and, and discern matters of justice. But if there was something that was really, really difficult and they couldn't quite come to an agreement, then you could literally, any, anyone in Israel could go to Jerusalem and they could bring their case before David, the king. And he himself would decide it. And so these people were coming to Jerusalem with not, not simple things, but tricky, complex questions about justice. The author doesn't tell us exactly what they were, but um, there were lots of people doing this. And so Absalom's there at the gate, and he's just waiting to catch these people as they're coming in. And uh, he, he would say, hey, where, where are you coming from? And they would say, well, I'm from this tribe. I'm from Benjamin, or I'm from Dan, or I'm from Naphtali, or whatever. And he would say, well, what's, what, are you, what are you doing here? And 
They would say, well, I've come here to, to bring this dispute to David. And Absalom would just shake his head. Oh, man, I hate to hear that. You know, unfortunately, the king hasn't appointed anyone to hear cases for people from Naphtali. Now, if you, if you think about it, these people should have said, wait a minute. Who is this guy? But this is the king's son, right? This isn't just anybody. This is Absalom. This is the king's son. He's got all these, he's got this chariot. He's got all these horses. He has, he has his own little army with him. And so this guy has the appearance of authority. And he's saying to people over and over, day after day, if only I were appointed as judge, which is another way of saying if only I were king, I would give you justice. Now, of course, Absalom does not actually have to do the hard work of deciding the case. He is a 10th uh, century B.C. populist. He just has to say, listen, I'm a, I'm a man of the people, and if I were in charge, I could do this job well. He doesn't actually have to do the job. He just has to say that he would. And they say, oh, what a great guy Absalom is. He, he simply has to suggest that he would do it better than King David if he were allowed to. And so he just has this job every day of criticizing, sowing division, and that's easier usually than actually getting positive things done. But over the course of four years, Absalom slowly and systematically draws more and more people's loyalty away from David and to himself. And the passage ends with Absalom going to Hebron with a plan for messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel to declare him king. That story as I've just explained it, you, you could have understood all that just by reading those 12 verses. It's, it's easy enough to comprehend. But the question is, what in the world does it have to do with us? We can see how David's sin comes back to bite him. We see here an intriguing story about ambition and conspiracy. This, this would make a good you know, John Gresham novel. But how is this story at all relevant for us beyond that, beyond just a good story? How is this relevant for us 3,000 years after the fact? Well, when we read stories like this, instead of just treating this as kind of a, a history lesson, a part of David's biography or something along those lines, it's helpful just to take a step back and say, okay, this is, this is not just a biography of a man who lived 3,000 years ago. I'm not reading the biography of David the way I would read the biography of Ulysses S. Grant. This is God's Word. God is wanting to teach me some truth here. So what truth is, this, is it that He's wanting to show me? What is this text showing me about God, about sin, about myself? We may not ever have done anything exactly like Amnon or like David or like Absalom, but we're certainly far from perfect, and God is intent on showing us the ugliness of sin. And so He shows us the ugliness of the sin of these people so that we can catch a glimpse of the ugliness of our own sin. We see that happen in the Bible itself, right? When, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, what did Nathan do? He came and, and he didn't say, David, you sinned. He told him a story about somebody that he thought was someone else. Let me tell you about this man. He had all these sheep, but then there was this poor man, and the rich man took the poor man's one sheep. By, by putting it in those terms, David could see... That's sin, because he thought it was someone else's sin. He saw the ugliness of sin, and then Nathan turned around and said, Oh yeah, by the way, that's you. And so God does that for us when we read stories like this. He helps us look at this and say, Boy, howdy, 
Absalom, what he did was awful. What Amnon did was awful. What David did was awful. And then God turns around and says, you are the man. You are the woman. You are, this, is, this is your sin as well. So no matter how we assess our sin, all sin is offensive to a perfectly holy God. And so I want to describe Absalom's conspiracy in more broad, universal terms in order to help us see how it's relevant to us. So I'm going to give you three truths about Absalom's conspiracy that I hope will help us see how this applies to us. First, Absalom's conspiracy is a consequence of David's sin. Absalom's conspiracy is a consequence of David's sin. We're going to see that Absalom is not off the hook. He's going to be held accountable for all that he does. But we need to remember that Absalom's sin happens in part because of David's failure. How is that? The most immediate answer is that David failed to punish Amnon for assaulting Tamar. That is what so enrages Absalom. Not only what Amnon did, but also what David failed to do. At this point in the story, Amnon is dead because Absalom had him murdered. And yet, Absalom's vengeance is not done yet, right? We, you would think, well, okay, he's, he's had his vengeance, Amnon's dead, he can kind of move on with his life, but that's not what he does. He's not just angry at what Amnon did, he's angry at what David did not do, what David failed to do. And we should pause to say that Absalom is right to think that David should have done something. He's not right in the way he responded or the way he took matters into his own hands, but he was right to think that David should have done something. You may or may not have heard the name uh, Rachel Denhollander. She was the first uh, person to file charges against Larry Nassar, the Michigan State and Olympic doctor who repeatedly abused gymnasts for years. Uh, Rachel Denhollander is a lawyer and a believer. In fact, her husband is a student at the same seminary where I went, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. So she's a lawyer, she's a believer, and she is herself a survivor of abuse at the hands of Larry Nassar. And at his sentencing hearing last year, over 150 women uh, gave victim impact statements. That is really hard to believe, but over 150 women gave victim impact statements, and Rachel Denhollander was the closer. She was the first one to file an official report, and then she was the last one to give her statement in the courtroom. And uh, I would, if you think you can uh, stomach it, I would encourage you to go and read her entire statement. It's not graphic. Um, it's, it's actually really um, profound in many ways. Uh, her impact statement was powerful and widely publicized at the time, but in the, in the months since she gave that statement in that courtroom, she has expressed some frustration at the way many Christians responded to what she said in the courtroom. So I'm reminding you, she herself is a believer, um, active part of a local church and all those kind of things, but she was a little bit frustrated at the way a lot of Christians responded to what she said in the courtroom. I want to give you an example of what I mean by that. At one point in her statement, she begins to talk about the forgiveness that Larry Nassar needs from God. 
She says, you need to be forgiven by God. And then she says, quote, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. So, so many people fixated on that offer of forgiveness, where she says, I extend forgiveness to you as well, while largely ignoring all that she said in the rest of her statement about justice. So I want to give you some, some context here. In her statement, she, she references the fact that Nassar brought a Bible with him to court. He uh, was a, or is a devout Catholic, uh, goes to Mass, and brought his Bible with him into the courtroom. And this is what she said in her impact statement. She said, The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt, so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me though I extend that to you as well. So the context in which she extends forgiveness to him is after she has just spoken very forcefully about the wrath of God and the justice of God. And throughout her statement, she comes back to this question, how much is a girl worth? How much is a girl worth? And she concludes her victim impact statement with this plea where she speaks directly to the judge. Judge Aquilina, I plead with you as you deliberate the sentence to give Larry Send a message that these victims are worth everything. I plead with you to impose the maximum sentence under the plea agreement because everything is what these survivors are worth. Thank you. Now, the reason I thought of Rachel Den Hollander as I was reading through 2 Samuel 13 and 14 and 15 is because she is absolutely right. Grace and justice are not at odds with one another. She is absolutely right to pray that her abuser would experience true repentance so that he might receive true forgiveness. But she's equally right to plead with the judge to impose the maximum sentence possible under the law. The Bible is not squishy on either of these matters. It extends grace even to the vilest of offenders who will truly repent and trust in Christ. Even Larry Nassar, if he truly repents and trusts in Christ and asks for forgiveness, he will be there to forgive him and show him mercy. But the Bible also upholds the cause of the oppressed and the victimized. And so as we think about the sad story of Amnon and Tamar and Absalom, several things can be true at the same time. What Amnon did was exceedingly evil. There's no way around it. Everyone in the story knows it. As he's doing it, Tamar is pleading with him not to do it because it's evil. So he's not ignorant of it. She's not ignorant of it. David's not ignorant of it. Everyone in the story knows that what he does is exceedingly evil. That's true. Here's something else that true, that's true. God is perfectly capable of forgiving Amnon if he will repent and seek forgiveness and mercy. We have no evidence in this story that he ever does that. In fact, after he assaults Tamar and she pleads with him, please don't cast me away now, he says to her two words, get up, get out. In Hebrew it's just two words, get up, get out. And he never wants anything to do with her again. 
So God is capable of forgiving Amnon if he will repent and seek forgiveness and mercy. We have no evidence that he ever does. Even if he does seek forgiveness from God, what he did to Tamar deserves justice. Absalom was right to desire justice for his victimized sister. He was wrong, however, to take that justice into his own hands. The Bible commends justice, but it prohibits vengeance. So Absalom was wrong to take justice into his own hands. And as the king, David was wrong not to take justice into his own hands. David is not just Amnon's daddy and Absalom's daddy. He is the king. He is God's anointed one. He is God's mediated authority who, has, who bears the authority of God to see that justice is done. What Amnon did to Tamar was evil. What Absalom did to Amnon was evil. In both cases, as God's anointed king, David should have imposed justice. And in both cases, he failed to do so. So that's what I mean when I say Absalom's conspiracy is a consequence of David's sin. The second truth I want us to see is that Absalom's conspiracy is a fulfillment of God's word. Back in chapter 12, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then tried to cover it up by murdering her husband, God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David. And God said to David through Nathan, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. So what's happening here in chapter 15 is a fulfillment of what God said would happen back in chapter 12. God is raising up evil against David out of his own household. So the first truth we saw is that Absalom's conspiracy is a consequence of David's sin. That is inescapably true. David failed to punish Amnon then he failed to punish Absalom. You could go back even further and say David committed adultery with Bathsheba, then he murdered her husband Uriah. Going back even further, David sinned when he took many wives against God's command. There's been a whole string of sins that have led up to this. David is reaping the fruit that he's been sowing for a long time. What I want you to see with this second truth is that God is, is not just sitting back kicking up his feet, and watching all these consequences play out on their own. God's hands are on the wheel, as it were. And as difficult as it may be for us to map, wrap our minds around, everything that happens here is a fulfillment of God's Word. This is all playing out exactly as He said it would. And God did not merely predict that evil would rise up from within David's house. God said, I will raise up evil out of your own house against you. So behind Absalom's conspiracy is God's purpose. So first, we need to see Absalom's conspiracy is a consequence of David's sin. If David wants to look around and say, why is this happening? He has nowhere else to look beside himself and what he's done. Second truth is that this is also a fulfillment of God's Word. And then the third truth is that Absalom's conspiracy is a sin against David and against the Lord this third truth is an important clarification to the second one. We don't need to make the mistake of thinking that because Absalom's conspiracy fulfilled God's promise, it's therefore somehow justifiable. 
what Absalom does is wrong. David is God's anointed one. Before David was king, we saw him honor Saul as God's anointed one, even though Saul was sinful, even though Saul tried to kill him, David still honored him because he was God's anointed one. God is going to hold Absalom accountable for the way he sins against his anointed one. But there is a mystery here with which we have to wrestle. The mystery is that Absalom does precisely what God said he would do, and yet at the same time, what Absalom does is unquestionably sinful. To put it another way, Absalom's actions are simultaneously against God's Word, and they're also a fulfillment of God's Word. How do we make sense of that? This is not a mystery that you only find in 2 Samuel 15. You find it all through the Bible. Going all the way back to the book of Genesis, when uh, Joseph's brothers grew jealous of him and threw him in a pit and made, made their dad think that he was dead. And that led Joseph down many, many years of suffering in prison, um, hardship of various kinds. <clears throat> but then in the providence of God, it leads Joseph to Egypt. It leads him to become the second-hand man to Pharaoh. And lo and behold, many years later, Joseph's brothers come to him because there's a famine in the land, and they need help. They don't know that the man they're asking help from is the brother that they threw into a pit all those years ago, but that's the way God works sometimes. And when they finally realize who he is, they panic because they know what they did, and they know that he's a man of great power now, <clears throat> and if he wants to, he could have every single one of them executed. But what does Joseph say to them? He looks at them and he says, What you intended for evil, God intended for good, to bring it about that many people would be saved on this day. They had evil intentions. They did what they wanted to do. They did what was sinful. They did what their sinful hearts inclined them to do. And yet, David, excuse me, Joseph says, What you intended for evil, God intended for good. God did not wait and see how it played out and then turn it for good, but that same evil intention that they had, God had a good intention, a good purpose. We see that later on in the, the life of Israel. They're going to be taken into exile by foreign nations. Those foreign nations have sinful purposes. But God says, I have a good purpose. I have a purpose to refine you like gold in a fire. I'm going to remove your dross and I'm going to purify you. I'm going to make you more holy because you're enduring this. Nowhere do we see this more clearly than at the cross of Christ. Nowhere do we see man's sinful purpose and God's good purpose on display in the same event more clearly than at the cross. In the crucifixion of Jesus, sinful men carried out one of the most egregious examples of injustice in all of human history. And at the same time, everything that happened was in perfect harmony with God's plan. This is the way Peter says it. In Acts 2, when he was preaching on the day of Pentecost, he looks out at the people of Jerusalem and he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, <clears throat> you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So if we ask, which, which was it? Which is true? Did sinful men kill Jesus? Or did Jesus die according to God's plan? The answer is yes. Both are true. 
Absalom's conspiracy is like a foreshadowing of Jesus' crucifixion. It contradicts God's will while at the same time carrying out God's will. I'll be completely honest with you. This is one of those truths that I, I feel I can articulate because the Bible articulates it, but I, I can't entirely wrap my mind around it. I don't think we're, we're meant to be able to understand it perfectly. It's one of those truths that is designed by God to make us marvel at His wisdom and power and mercy and say, He is God and we are not. His ways are higher than our ways. God is able to take the sinful intentions of men and use them for good to carry out His righteous and perfect plans. Both David in 2 Samuel and Jesus, both of these men were sinned against in fulfillment of God's good purposes. The major difference, of course, between David and Jesus is that Absalom's conspiracy was a consequence of David's sin. Jesus, on the other hand, had no sin. He had done nothing deserving of rejection or death, whereas Absalom's conspiracy was a consequence of David's sin. Jesus' death was a consequence of our sin. He had no sin but ours, and we have no righteousness but His. So rather than looking at David in self-righteousness, or, or Absalom for that matter, rather than looking at David in self-righteousness and saying, oh, poor David, he's just getting what he deserved. This story ought to force us to turn our eyes and look to Jesus and say, he got what I deserved. David was getting what he deserved, but Jesus did not get what he deserved because he was perfectly righteous, perfectly sinless, never did a single thing wrong, and yet he endured the greatest injustice in all history. He got what I deserved. By God's grace, God laid the consequences of my sin on Jesus. He carried out His perfect justice upon my sin on Jesus so that God could extend His perfect mercy to sinners like you and me. What a Savior we have in Jesus. But I would be remiss if I did not also remind you that Jesus is first and foremost our Savior, but then He is also our example. I don't want you to think that, yes, there's this, there's this line of people in the Bible who they endure hardship and that's sinful men acting toward them, but God had a good purpose. But then Jesus comes along and He endures that final uh, injustice so that we never have to. Even after the crucifixion of Christ, we hear Paul put into words the same thing that we see in Joseph and in Job and in David and in the exile and in Jesus. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 says, A thorn was given me in the flesh. He never tells us what the thorn was. It's sufficiently vague that you can kind of put yourself into Paul's shoes. Whatever it is, it could be something physical could be something spiritual, it could be something mental, it could be something relational. The thorn might be some disease, it might be some uh, accident or tragedy, it, it could be a person, it could be uh, uh, some mental illness, any number of things. Paul says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, whatever that was. And then notice he says, a messenger of Satan to harass me. So the thorn in his flesh was a messenger of Satan to harass him. Satan was harassing Paul. But then Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, who wants to keep Paul from being conceited? Not Satan. Satan would love it if Paul were really conceited. But God 
was intent on keeping Paul holy and keeping him from becoming conceited, which is why Paul goes on to say, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away, and he said, No, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. So we have a Savior in Jesus, but we also have an example of one who endured hardship at the hands of sinful people, uh, and God had a good purpose in it. God has a good purpose in whatever's going on in your life too. He always has a good plan. It's not always easy to see, but He's at work. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to the Word of God. I'm going to be standing at the head of the aisle. I'd love to speak with you or pray with you this morning. The altar's open if you'd like to come forward and pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your wisdom and Your power and Your mercy. Lord, that You intervene and uh, supersede all human purposes such that even when, even when sinful people act, Lord, that You are still at work. Lord, even when we experience the consequences of our own sin, You're still at work in our life to draw us closer to You. And so I pray, Lord, as, as we have this moment now to reflect and to respond God, that You would help us, each one of us, to consider <clears throat> what it is that You might be doing in our lives through the various uh, trials. Uh, Lord, they may be big or small, um, but God, help us to see what Your purpose might be in that. God, help us to turn to You to see that because of Jesus, the greatest tragedy ever has been has been avoided if we trust in Him. Lord, that we're not looking forward to an eternity of hell, but to an eternity in which we get to be like You, sinless and free from sickness and smallness and weakness. But God, now in these bodies of weakness, we still struggle, we still endure hardships, and most of all, we still endure our own sin. And so God, help us to look to You and find in You a refuge and a help. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.